If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145, and uh, we will be looking at Psalm 145 and the sovereignty of God, which is probably one of the larger and more complex doctrines in the Bible, not because... um, not because the, the different parts are necessarily hard to understand. Some parts are, but there's just so many sub-doctrines that come under sovereignty and they all fit together and it's, um, it's complex. It's complex. And this morning we are going to be looking at the sovereignty of God. But before we do that, I just want to spend some time discussing with you how we are going to study the sovereignty of God from Psalm 145. Um, We've been going through Timothy for a long time, and we went through verse by verse, and and that is the standard way of doing exposition. Biblical exposition is nothing more, you've heard of the term expose, it's just to expose things um, from the scripture. That's what it means to exposit the scriptures, to bring to light what is in the text of the Bible. And so we are going to be looking at um, some things from the text of Psalm 145. But not only that, we are going to be looking at some things from other texts that relate to things in Psalm 145. We are going to be going and looking at doctrines, theological topics, attributes of God from Psalm 145 and also going to other texts and adding to it. Now, usually, when you're going through, let's say, uh, a letter in one of the to one of the churches in the New Testament, they lend themselves to very methodical, slow verse by verse type teaching, where you look at verses or you know phrases or even words. Sometime you you interpret the passage, you um, derive principles from the passage, then you explain how those principles apply, and that's kind of your standard approach to biblical exposition. But when you get to certain other kinds of biblical literature, you might change your approach. For instance, if you were teaching a narrative, you might want to teach the entire story at one time because it was the author's intent to communicate some grand message or theme through the story. This last Wednesday, I taught on the entire book of Job. 42 chapters, because the whole book teaches us a grand thing. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go through Job verse by verse. But if you go slow through a passage, you can go deeper in doctrine, but then you miss the overall theme and thrust. If you do the overall theme and thrust, then a lot of times you miss all the good doctrinal details. And that's always the the challenge whenever you're studying a passage. Should I go slow? Should I go fast? Should I go deep? Should I go shallow and wide? You know, what should I do? But it is expository preaching as long as you take the information from the text in its context and then explain what the text says. And you can do that by going to other passages which speak on the same issue and develop the doctrine that is found in your text. Now, whenever you do studies such as... uh, um, You might have heard the term systematic theology or biblical theology. Let's just talk about those terms a little bit because they're going to relate directly to what we're going to be doing. Systematic theology is when you go to all the different texts in the Bible and you find out what they all say about 
one given doctrine or theological topic and then you combine everything the Bible says and make summary statements based off of everything the Bible says and then apply those summary statements to life. That's what systematic theology attempts to do. Then there is another kind of theology that is called biblical theology and it's not that systematic theology is unbiblical, it's just called that. Um, Biblical theology is an attempt to look at any particular text and extract the doctrine from that text alone. Now you might be able to see how biblical theology and systematic theology relate. Systematic theology is composed of all the information from doing biblical theology on individual texts. It's like the piece of a big puzzle. Let's say you have a big puzzle, you put the whole thing together, and when you get it all together, you can see clearly the big picture, the systematic theology, so to speak, of that picture. Now, biblical theology would be comparable to taking one piece of the puzzle and looking at it. Noticing its shape, noticing the colors, the designs, you know, how things are arranged on that one little piece. Now, there are some dangers to both biblical and systematic theology, and these are the dangers. The danger to biblical theology is when somebody goes to the text of Scripture, and they look at one passage, and they say, this is what the Bible teaches on this subject as if that was all the Bible taught from that one passage. That would be the equivalent of taking a piece out of a box and saying, I know what the whole picture is because I can see what's on this one piece. And this is where a lot of the cults go wrong. What happens is, is somebody is reading their Bible and they come to a weird passage and that passage seems to say something strange and they say, it does say something strange and it means something strange and that's what the Bible teaches. And even though you can show them 75 other clear passages which don't teach that, to try and explain to them that that's not what it's saying, they disregard the 75 passages because of the one passage that, that, that's just the anchor of their doctrine. And so one of the dangers of um, uh, dealing with uh, the Bible in little pieces is a lot of times you miss the whole picture of everything the Bible says. The reason the Bible has so much to say on different doctrines is because um, God wants us to search the scriptures and find out what the Bible says as a whole. Now the danger of systematic theology is to get a system and then force texts which don't fit your system to fit your system because it's your system, not God's. For instance, you find young men today who are, you know, maybe really into the Puritans or the Reformers, and so they go in there and they read all these Puritan works and Reformed works, and, you know, they're reading about Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and, you know, on and on, and they get this system. That is their system now. It wasn't derived from the exegesis of many texts. It was derived from reading the works of men. Then they have this defined system. Then when they come to a passage that contradicts their system, they try and explain away what the passage clearly says because they don't want it messing with their system. 
So you have to be careful not to go into the one extreme and just take a piece and say, see this piece here? This is all the Bible says. Or to go in the other extreme and just buy up a system from somebody and say, this system is flawless and it can never be changed. Which is not true. No one has a flawless theological system. So, those are the dangers. The advantages to both of those positions are this. When you're studying biblical theology, you get to focus on one passage and its context and find out what it says and what it means and the principles and how it applies. The good thing is then you have the systematic theology and you can compare. And they're like checks and balances. If this contradicts the biblical theology from this one text, contradicts your systematic theology, then you know something's wrong. Either your interpretation of the biblical text is wrong or your system's wrong and it needs to be tweaked. Something needs to be changed because the word of God does not contradict itself. So when we come to Psalm 145, we're going to be doing a little bit of both. We're going to be going into the text, making observations of the text and what the text says and what it means. And then we're going to go outside the text and accumulate other texts which speak to the same issue to develop more fully the doctrines that are here concerning the attributes of God. Now I tell you all that so that you can understand why we aren't going through the text verse by verse. It's because we aren't. And now you know. Now you know. So for this morning, I want to begin to look at two aspects of one of the largest doctrines and most important doctrines found in Scripture, and that is the sovereignty of God. And these are the two things we're going to look at. Point number one, your God is king. And point number two, your God rules as king. Those are the two things we want to look at this morning. And if you are at Psalm 145, and if you aren't there, I need to be there. I'm in another passage. There we go. Oh, it just went right to it. Great. I wonder why. Um, Psalm 145, verse 1. Look there. David writes, I will extol you, O my king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. There is a word here in verse 1 that is a huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. And that is this. God is king. God is king. Now when you talk about kings. And most of us know what a king is. You know we, we understand you know, kings are rulers. But we're, we're, we're kind of removed from kings. And so we need to be reminded a little bit more of what a king is. Because God is a king. He is a king. He is a sovereign, a supreme ruler, an absolute dictator. He has all authority and all dominion over all subjects and things in his realm. He is not like the president where somebody can veto a decision he makes. He doesn't have checks and balances. He is perfectly sovereign. Kings are this way. They aren't into democracy. They're into absolutism. Where their will gets sway. King has an advisor. It's not a good advisor. He says, well, you know, I want him chopped up into pieces. The king can do that. Because he's king. Or he can exile him into another country. Or he can give him a promotion. He's king. He can make laws. He can overturn laws single-handedly. And he doesn't have to ask for permission. He is the king. 
And you need to remember this, that when we speak of God as king, we're talking about God as being this independent, absolute sovereign over all. Now there's another word in the text, if you look at verse 12 of Psalm 145, that also speaks of God's sovereignty. This is the word majesty. Look at verse 12. David writes, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. This word majesty is used to describe sovereign power and sovereign dignity and sovereign authority and sovereign greatness and royal splendor. That's what majesty is. Kings are majestic. God is a majestic, sovereign king. Now, whenever you start talking about kings, you want to ask yourself, now what actually makes a king a king? Let me give you four things, four important things that make a king a king. The first thing that makes someone a king is he has authority. A king has authority. He has to have authority. If you are going to reign as king, you must have authority. Now, Webster defines authority as power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. And if anyone had the power to command thought or opinion or behavior, it's God. Because he has all power. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He is the one who declares the beginning from the end, who does whatever he pleases. God's authority is infinite. To whatever degree authority can be had, God has it to the infinite degree. And it helps us understand statements like what Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You remember what he said that? He stood up there and he said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. What was he saying? I am God. There is only one person with all authority. And that person is God. Jesus could have said just the same, I am God. Go therefore and make disciples. He was claiming to be the sovereign of the universe. Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth he said he had authority over. We see another word in our text that is related to God's authority. Look at verse 13. Where David says this. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This word dominion is to have supreme authority. God has dominion over all he has created and this would include not only the physical universe but anything that is anything that is created, you know, metaphysical, uh, different realms, different, you know, realities, you know, where the angels tread, I don't know. But wherever it is, and whatever it is, if it is, God rules it, has dominion over it. So the first thing God has to have as a king is authority, and he has an infinite amount, so he's good there. The second thing God needs to have is power. As we mentioned earlier, you cannot have authority unless you have power. The question is, how much power does God have? Well, he has all power. That's handy if you're going to be king. Now, when we're talking about earthly kings, where did, what do we talk about when we're talking about their power? 
Well, you know, let's say, you know, you have an earthly king and he, you know, he's big and he's muscular. So he's got a little bit of physical power. Maybe he's very smart, so he has some intellectual power. Maybe he has some skills of persuasion, you know, so he has some power. But when you're talking about earthly kings, earthly kings get most of their power from those who are willing to follow them. For instance, we could say, oh, this was a great king, a powerful king. And what we really mean by that is this is a king who has a powerful nation who are all willing to band together behind him and follow him. Because if the whole nation didn't follow the king, he would just be a guy taking a walk. He wouldn't be a king. But think about God. God is powerful in and of himself. He doesn't need anyone to support him. He doesn't need anyone to get behind him to make sure that they fight for him. God is powerful in and of himself. God could, for instance, decide right now to speak a million universes the same size as ours into existence and it wouldn't wear him out. It wouldn't... It wouldn't diminish his power. He's not like a battery, you know, that kind of needs recharged. He is at full strength all the time. And the full strength of God is infinite strength. That is why in the scriptures he is called God Almighty or the Lord Almighty 58 times. The word Almighty meaning Almighty. Do you remember what the angel of the Lord said to Sarah in Genesis chapter 18 verse 14 when when the angel appeared and said, you know, you're going to have a baby and she's thinking, oh, sure. I didn't have a baby when I was able to bear children and now that I am almost in the grave, you know, this guests come and say, I'm going to have a baby and the angel reproves her and says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the implied answer is no. Then the angel said, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And guess what? Next year, Sarah had a son. Why? Because nothing is too difficult for the Lord. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 23 At the end of a discussion that God is having with Moses. Moses, of course, is with the people. They're in the wilderness and they're tired of manna. You know, they've had fried manna and stir-fried manna. They've had baked manna and manna soup and manna gruel and, you know, manna on manna. You know, I mean, they have manna. That's what they have. And, you know, they have this, you know, manna recipe book as big as the, you know, L.A. phone book. And they're tired of manna. And so they say, you know, well, can't we just have some, you know, can't we just have some meat? I mean, we want some meat. We want some meat. And so Moses is a little bit distressed because the people distress and he's representing the people. He knows they're complaining and he knows God knows they're complaining. So he comes to God and says, you know, Lord, hey, the people really want something. They really want something to eat. It's some meat. And he says, but you know, I don't know what we're going to do. He says, you know, there's 600,000 men plus women and children. I mean, how could we ever feed? I mean, if we killed all of our beasts, we couldn't feed them all. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? God says, I don't know. Let's pray. (laughs) Is that what he said? 
No. The Lord says to Moses this, is the Lord's power limited? The implied answer is, no, it is not. Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And guess what? It came true. And guess what? The text says, figuratively, they ate quail until it came out their nostrils. They had plenty to feed everyone. Because God's power is not limited. In Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17, Jeremiah is praising God and he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And then in a few verses later, God replies to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And the implied answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for God. One of my favorite little texts is in Luke chapter 1 verse 37 where Mary has been told by the angel she's going to give birth to a son even though she's a virgin. And she seems to be humble because God doesn't punish her or anything like Zechariah made Zechariah deaf. deaf. Um, he couldn't speak because of his doubting the angel that Elizabeth was going to have a baby. But Mary seems to ask an honest question, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit is going to overcome you and the power of the Most High is going to conceive in your womb this child. And then the angel reminds her of Elizabeth who, like Sarah, was barren all of her childbearing years, got too old, was almost in the grave, and now she's pregnant. And then the angel answers the question that Mary asked, and this is the answer. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's the answer. What are you doing doubting God? Nothing is impossible for God. All things are possible with him. Nothing is too difficult for him. And people, this is the God who sent his only begotten son into the world to die on the cross for you. He is the God we sing songs to here. He is the God that watches you in your home and when you're at work and when you're at school. He is the same God. The same nothing is too impossible for God. Our God. We aren't talking about some abstract God and some theological concept of some Greek myth. The God you and I serve, the God who is king, is the God who can do anything. He has all authority and he has all power. And not only that, God has a kingdom. If you're going to be a king, you need to have authority, you need to have power, you need to have a kingdom or a sphere to rule over. I mean, you you can't be ruling over nothing. And so what does God rule over? Well, sometimes in the scriptures we, we talk about the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God and it's you know, speaking of the, you know, the eternal state or the thousand year reign of Christ. But in a general sense, everything that exists is God's realm because he rules over it all. We see David reminding us of this in verse 11. Look there, 145. 
They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power and make no, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. And your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Of course God has a kingdom. It's everything. He created everything, he sustains everything, and he rules over everything. Psalm chapter 9 verses 4 through 7 speak of God sitting on his throne judging the men of the earth. In Psalm 47 verse 8 it speaks of God reigning over the nations. In Isaiah 66 1 the Lord says heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And we read a great text from Isaiah 40 talking about the same thing. God rules over all people all men all nations everything and the heavens and the earth everything his his entire dominion he has authority and rules all of it and fourth the king needs subjects subjects and who are the king's subjects they're us men and holy angels and fallen holy angels that we call demons you know, a lot of people think of Satan as this, you know, very powerful being, and he is. And he's out there, he's, you know, sneaking up on people, ambushing them without cause, and God, you know, has got his, you know, pulling out his hair trying to stop him. Not even close. Satan is accountable to God. Do you remember what happened in Job, the book of Job in chapter 1 and 2, where it says, and the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them. What was going on there? The angels were giving an account to God. They were accountable to God. Do you remember what happened in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where, where um, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Satan is demanding permission. To sift you like wheat. Satan doesn't do anything. He doesn't exist without God. He cannot function without God. God keeps Satan alive and existing by the word of his power. And if he wanted to, he could speak him out of existence anytime he wanted. When we see Jesus on earth, it's amazing. He's just walking along. He encounters somebody and all of a sudden the demons just come alive what do we have to do with you son of man or son of god have you come here to torment us before our time i mean they are terrified terrified at his presence here god incarnate is walking around on earth and these demons think everything's hunky and all of a sudden whoa the holy one of god do you remember what the gerizim demoniac said please do not cast us into the abyss this is in luke 8 and matthew 8 he said, send us into the swine, anything but the abyss, please. So he made this huge batch of deviled ham. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't resist. But Jesus had total sovereignty because he was God incarnate. And it was revealed in just how the demons responded. It's a very interesting study. He just comes up. They don't give him any flack. They know who he is. I mean, he may look like a man, but inside that shell is the infinitude of God. All the attributes of God all crammed into that thing. I don't know how that works. 100% God, 100% man. And they were terrified because he is the sovereign. 
And an unbelievers are some, way, some ways like the fallen angels. They're in rebellion against God. But what's interesting is even in their rebellion, they do God's will. Isn't that amazing? And we're going to study this more next week and the week after, just how God rules. But you, know, you think of things like, um, like what Peter said um, when he's preaching to the Jews. Now, the Jews hated Jesus. The Jews plotted to kill him. The Jews successfully got him crucified. And so afterwards, Peter, preaching to the Jews, I think in Acts chapter 4, says, This Jesus, whom you crucified by the predetermined plan of God, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Well, who did it? The Jews did. Well, who did it? God did. Well, how is that? Well, we're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. That's called the doctrine of concurrence, but you can file that. But God is able to move and direct history and men to accomplish his perfect will because he is sovereign. He doesn't have to ask permission. He doesn't, you know, send letters to people saying, okay, I want this certain prophecy fulfilled. And so I want everybody to be in the exact right places. So, so you know, when Jesus rides in, you'll have to say, Hosanna in the highest. And, uh, you know, because he's coming in and I got to make sure prophecy lines up. Because if it doesn't happen, I'm not God. He makes it happen. And it's not hard for him. Because he's sovereign. And God saves us. So that we would learn how to conform to his sovereignty. That's what obedience is. Obedience is to submit to the sovereignty of God. And when Paul talked about in Romans 1 and Romans 16 about preaching the gospel, which was to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's what he was talking about. Paul told Titus in chapter 2 verses 11 through 15, that Christ died to redeem us from lawless deeds, to purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You were saved to submit to your king, just like the holy angels do all the time. That should be our goal. Theologian Louis Burkhoff defined God's sovereignty with these words. Quote, God is represented as the creator and his will as the cause of all things. In virtue of his created work, heaven and earth and all they contain belong to him. He is clothed with absolute authority over the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He upholds all things with his almighty power and determines the ends which they are destined to serve. He rules as king in the utmost most absolute sense of the word, and all things are dependent on him and subservient to him, end quote. That is exactly right. A.W. Pink said this in his work, The Attributes of God, quote, the sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, he is the most high Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. Nothing can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact as well as name, that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will, end quote. Amen. Tozer said this, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free, end quote. 
God's sovereignty should not be confused with his will. It shouldn't be confused with his providence. It is his position. His position as absolute monarch of everything. And we're going to talk about those other things, the will of God and the providence of God in the weeks to come. But the real authority on the sovereignty of God is not the great theologians of the past, and it's not me, it's God. And so let's look at the word of God and see what God says about himself. First Chronicles chapter 29, you can turn there and we'll be looking at a few texts. If you have a new Bible, we will break it in this morning. First Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 11 and 12. David is praising God and he says this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, did you see that? You thought Deuteronomy 8 was the only passage that said God gives the power to make wealth. No, it's taught many places in the scripture. If you have some wealth, it's because God gave it to you. Or God gave you the ability to acquire it. But it is from God. Turn over to the book of Job. Job chapter 23. Right before the book of Psalms. Job 23, verse 12. And again, this is just a sampling. Uh, Verse 13. Verse 13 says, speaking of God, But he is unique who can turn him, and what his soul desires that he does. God is unique because when he decides to do something, no one can turn him. And when he decides to do something, that is exactly what he ends up doing. What his soul desires, he does. God doesn't need somebody else. He does what he wants. Turn over to chapter 42. This is right after God Ask Job all those hard questions he doesn't know the answer to. And Job begins to respond. And this is the first thing out of his mouth. In verse 2 of Job 42. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Turn over to Psalm 103. I've got them in order here, so you don't have to go back and forth. So be thankful. Psalm 103, verse 19. Says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. All. 
Look at Psalm 115.3. This is one of my favorites. I like this one because it just says it quick and simple. But our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. I like that. God just does what he wants. He's in the heavens, we're on earth, and he does whatever he pleases. Look at Psalm 135 verse 6. A similar verse. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the depths. In other words, there's no place that God doesn't rule. He does whatever he wants. He wants. Not what we want, what he wants. Not what we think is right, what he thinks is right. Not in the way we think things should be done, in the way he knows they should be done. We're going to talk about that later when we talk about his wisdom, which is infinite. Proverbs 21.1. This is a great comfort in a day like today when you see all of these, you know things going on back east and you have this one wicked ruler doing this or this politician doing this or whatever and you're thinking oh my goodness who is in control the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the lord he turns it wherever he wishes you know people get upset and go you know so-and-so got elected or so-and-so's ruling or so-and-so's doing this back east and all i can tell you is is listen there is no authority except that which is established by God. Romans 13 says all authority exists by God. There is no authority except that which is established by God. And all of those kings and rulers and whatever, their heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he can turn it any way he wants. And if he doesn't, then we know whatever they're doing is what God's will is for the situation. You think, well, gosh, Jack, isn't that kind of, uh, isn't that kind of uh, extreme? Sure, it is. It's absolutely extreme. Turn to Lamentations chapter three, right after the book of Jeremiah. Another one of my favorite texts. Speaking of God, Jeremiah writes. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? And the implied answer is no one. No one says anything apart from God. Verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill or even evil go forth? The implied answer is of course. You see... As Jonathan Edwards says, all who know God know that God knows all things and that he knows all things beforehand. And to know all things beforehand and to allow them to happen is to decree them. God is after the most glory for himself and he's going to get it and he's not going to be stopped. And to us, we may think, well, this is wicked and this is evil. And it might be. 
But in the grand theme of what God's accomplishing in history, he is going to get the most glory for himself as he seeks to work things out in ways we can't understand. And to question God's sovereignty because we can't understand why he's doing something, it's a sin. We need to submit to what these and many other scriptures say. Do you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? And how he was proud and, you know, how he was taking glory for himself and how the Lord came and warned him not to be proud. And he was proud anyways. Do you remember the lesson that he was supposed to learn? Turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Let me remind you of the lesson that he was supposed to learn. Look at verse 17. This sentence is the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know. What what do the living need to know? Here it is. That the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, God is the sovereign who is over all the realms of mankind and he puts people in place that he wants in place. Look at verse 25. This is... The warning of what's going to happen if he gets proud again. That you may be driven away from mankind in your dwelling place and be with the beasts of the field and be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time that seven years will pass over you until you recognize what? That the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whoever he wishes. Look down at verse 32 after the fact. This is the judgment before he gets sent out. And you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that. What? The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. There's a theme here. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, now we're going to find out, now the angel isn't talking, Daniel isn't talking, now we're finding out from Nebuchadnezzar himself the lesson he learned. And God is good at teaching lessons. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is infinitely sovereign over everything that happens. That's what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. And I know some of you out there you have the but questions. But, 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 well, we're going to try and finish them in the next several weeks. But think about it. Just look at what the text says and believe it. There is a message here repeated five times. God is the most high sovereign who rules 
every single thing in heaven and earth. In volume one on page 440 of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology, after quoting some of the same verses that we've looked at, Hodge says this, quote, It is plain, one, that the sovereignty of God is universal. It extends over all his creatures from the highest to the lowest. Two, that it is absolute. There is no limit to be placed on his authority. He does his pleasure in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And three, it is immutable. It can neither be ignored nor rejected. It binds all creatures as inexorably as physical laws bind the material universe, end quote. I was speaking to one of the elders a while ago and we were talking about the sovereignty and he said, Jack, now, do you actually think God is sovereign over things like the beating of a fly's wing? I said, of course. Of course he's sovereign over the beating of a fly's wing. Ask yourself this, does God know all things? Yes. Does he know about all flies? Yes. Does he sustain all flies? Yes. Does any fly ever do anything without God allowing it and giving it the ability to do that? Well, no. Answer. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign even over the tiniest of details. Have you ever wondered in the Bible when they're, you know, you're reading through the Old Testament or something and there's some big monumental decision that needs to be made and they say, well, let's cast lots. Or, you know, they're, they're, they're the apostles, you know, Judas goes out and hangs himself. They go, we need another apostle. Let's cast lots. You're thinking, what is going on here? You know, let's pick straws. Does that seem straight? Flip a coin. Find out who's going to be the next apostle. You see, we are so saturated with evolutionary thinking, evolutionary thinking, the God of evolution is chance. The Bible does not acknowledge chance. It acknowledges one supreme being who rules and decrees all that happens. Evolution believes in the God of chance. Christians believe in the sovereign God. The one sovereign God. That is why you read things like Proverbs 16.33 which says, The lot is cast into the lap and what? It's every decision is from the Lord. Every one. You could sit there all day and flip a coin. And every decision is from the Lord. That is why they cast lots. Because they understood God was sovereign, that he was in control of everything, so flip a coin, make him decide. There's not chance. Of course God is sovereign over every plant and rock and bird and bug and spider and virus and the beating of every fly's wing. I mean, doesn't the Bible say he has every hair on your head numbered? And then they're constantly growing and falling out. And some, it's falling out more than it's growing. But God has them all numbered. He's sovereign over everything. To every detail, no matter how small or how big, he's sovereign. And we need to keep that in mind. Because a lot of times, we we have this, well, God's sovereign, we just say it. But we don't stop to think of what that actually means. If God wasn't in control of something, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be absolutely sovereign. Now, here's another thing you need to consider, and we're going to have to develop this in the next two weeks also. Your God rules as king. 
Not only is he sovereign, but he rules as a sovereign. It's not some theory. It is an actual thing that's happening right now in your life. But a lot of people have troubles with this because, you know, you look in the paper, you look on TV, you look in the world, you look at other people and you see evil and corrupt. And you're wondering, how could all this evil be exist? I mean, how could there be a good God over all of this? I mean, you know, my goodness, it just doesn't seem right that, you know, God should let this happen. Well, if God had to destroy all evil, none of us would be here now, would we? And don't ask for that. Don't ask him, Lord, please get rid of all evil, then we're gone. God has a purpose for allowing evil to exist. If you just go back to Adam and Eve and you ask yourself, okay, he created Adam and Eve. Now, did he know before they were created that they were going to fall into sin? Yes. Did he know that Eve was going to be deceived and that Adam would willfully eat and disobey? Yes. Did he know the consequences of this? Yes. Did he have the power to stop it? Yes. Did he? No. Why? Because he is going to get more glory from allowing men to disobey him. Now you're thinking, oh, that's, that's heavy duty. Yeah, wait till we get to next week. Then you're thinking, oh, I, I long for the first sermon. But God is in control. Now when Adam fell, he was the king of the world. And when he submitted to Satan, then Satan became the king of the world. And that's why 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. And, and 1 John five nineteen says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we could ask ourselves, well, it wasn't Satan in control. Isn't God kind of giving Satan the ball and he's kind of standing back on, whoa, look at him. Okay, he's, he's ruining things. And then every once in a while kind of intervening a little bit. No, no. Do not think Satan is, because he's called the God of this world, that he is on some equal par or that God is not involved. God is involved in everything. Satan does nothing without God's permission. Satan is nothing more than, you know, the shoeshine boy to the president. Sure, he has authority to, to shine the president's shoes, but that's all. He doesn't make decisions or policies for the nation. He just shines the shoes. Well, God has given Satan certain freedoms and certain prerogatives for a certain time. But he is over and sovereign over all of that. Satan is sustained by the word of God. And Satan wouldn't even exist if God didn't cause him to exist by the word of his power. So God is ruling right now in the world, in this country, in this church, and in your life. And when you're talking about the sovereignty of God, it has huge implications for how you live. And I'm just going to give one example and one application. We'll have more painful ones to come. But this is it. Have you ever heard of anybody getting anxious, worrying, fretting in the modern day vernacular, getting stressed out? Maybe people back east. Now, when you read the Bible, the Bible tells you that anxiety, worry, stress, stressing out, fretting is a sin. You can go to Philippians 4, 6 and say, do not be anxious or be anxious for nothing. Okay, the Bible says that. And then a lot of times though, we justify our stressing out because, oh, you don't know my boss. 
you don't know this, there was a burglar outside my window in the middle of the night. I'm just so stressful. Ever since it happened, I just can't sleep at night. I'm worrying. I'm stressing because of evil men. You go to texts like Psalm 37.1, this is what it says. Do not fret because of evildoers. And Psalm 37.8, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Or you go to Psalm 37.9, or 37.8, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Three times he says, do not fret in just that one psalm. And what's neat is the Hebrew construction of the verb there is called a hith peel. It's what is called a reflexive verb. It really means don't fret yourself. Don't, don't work yourself up into an anxious frenzy. And you have to ask yourself this. Why does the Bible say do not be anxious, do not fret, do not worry, when it's so common? It's so easy to get anxious, isn't it? It's so easy. And a lot of times, you know, you talk with people, they go, well, I can't help it. You know, you, you don't understand my neighbor. You don't, you've never had to listen to their dog. You don't know my boss. You don't know my in-laws. You know, you, you, you didn't see my house fall into the big crack in the earth when we had the earthquake. And then I found out I had cancer. And then... You know, brimstone fell from heaven and wiped out my family. Add on to it whatever you want. There is no excuse for sinning. No one causes you to be anxious. You choose to be anxious. Anxiety is your failure to either one, know that God is sovereign, or two, to believe he is sovereign even though you know he is. It is your failure to live in light of who God is. Because when you look at it, the people who fret and anxious, why do you fret and anxious? Because you aren't in control. Because something's happening and your day is falling apart and you've tried your best and you just can't get all the pieces and it's, yeah. Isn't that how it happens? And you wonder, you wonder, oh, you know, I just, oh, it's just so nervous because you're not in control. Well, I have some news for you. You never were in control. God is in control and he is the one who is sovereign. Your problem is, is you've deceived yourself into thinking you were in control and then you've got stressed out when you found out God was. That is why anxiety and fretting and worrying and stressing out is a sin because it is an attack on the very person of God. By being anxious, what you're telling God is, God, you don't know this is happening to me. You didn't know this was coming. Your grace isn't sufficient. And now here I am suffering and you have no ability to do anything about it. That's what you're telling God. No one makes you anxious. No one, no one makes you fret. And people will say things like, oh, yeah, but man, you've, you've never been where I am. You know, there's always somebody who has this bigger fret than you do. This bigger situation that, you know, they're going to use to justify their sin. So I want you to turn to Daniel 3. Daniel chapter 3. Now, here's a great example of some people who applied what they knew to be true of God. Daniel 3. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember them? Daniel's friends. Nebuchadnezzar raised this big statue and said, you know, everybody has to worship it. And they said, no. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, he is powerful. And he is not used to having anyone say no to him because he is a king. And he has sovereignty and dominion and authority and power. And he is so outraged, he's just, he's just come unglued. What? You, if you don't, if you don't worship me, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And look how they answered him in verse 16. I love this. I love this. This is what it means to live in light of the sovereignty of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Oh, would that just have frosted him? We don't even need to talk to you. We, we don't even need to answer. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. And that is exactly how it was. Do you see any fretting there? Any anxiety? Any worry? Why? Because they knew God was sovereign. They knew that God was in control. They knew God could rescue him. And they knew that even if they got thrown into the furnace and were burned up, that would be the will of God because he is sovereign over everything. And that would be his plan. And they're fine with that too. And what's interesting is they do get thrown in and the men who throw them in die and they live. Because God is sovereign. No no fretting or worrying or being anxious. I mean, we get anxious when we run out of milk. And we fret and worry about the most minuscule things. But don't believe it. Circumstances, people... Do not make you anxious. You choose to be anxious when you choose not to live in light of who God is, which is sovereign, absolutely. We need to remember what Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. That's your boss, your family, your marriage, your husband who left you, whatever it is, God is sovereign over all of that. God knows all things before they happen. God has all power. God could stop anything he wanted from happening. If he allows it to happen, it's part of his plan. You may not understand why, but it is. Now, what is there in your life that God has not allowed to come to pass? That he didn't know about? They didn't give you grace to deal with. Nothing. Nothing. Your God is king and he is now ruling and he is now ruling in your life. We need to remember what Tozer said. The most important thing about us is what what we think about when we're thinking about God. What comes to our mind when we think about God. It is life changing. From this one example, you can see how important it is to have a very firm understanding and faith in who God is. Because it is life-changing. You would think that for some, theology is nothing more than a game of mental gymnastics. And you discuss all these great doctrines and you know who can have the best arguments and the best verses. But it never gets down into their life. 
We need to get theology in our life, not just in our head. Now, I want you to think about these things, because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be really <laughs> looking at some things you've probably never heard of. And it all relates to how you live because of who God is. George A. Young, a 19th century hymn writer, he wrote a hymn called God Leads Us Along. And these are the words. In shady green pastures so rich and sweet, God leads his children along. Where the waters cool, flow bathes, uh, flow bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his children along. Sometimes in the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads his children along. And sometimes in the valley in the darkest of night, God leads his dear children along. Though sorrow befalls us and Satan oppose, God leads his dear children along. And through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes, God leads his dear children along. And the chorus is, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood, some through great sorrow, but God gives us a song in the night season and all the day long. And as you leave here today, I hope you begin to live in light of who God is. He is sovereign. He is watching. He knows everything. He's listening. And he has a plan for things, even though you don't understand what that plan is. Next week, we will begin to look at the will of God and the providence of God and how God actually works out his rule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimpse at part of those doctrines related to your sovereignty. And Father, I just pray that all of us would have great courage as we seek to live in light of who you are. Father, we, we can't see you, but we know you're there. Father, we know that the righteous is to live by faith, and if he shrinks back, your soul has no pleasure in him. So, Father, help us not sh- to shrink back into anxiety or fretting or worry or being stressed out. Help us to be calm like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Jesus, like other godly men who, when encountering great trials, were unmoved because they have a God who is a rock and a refuge and a fortress never failing. And Father, I just pray that we would leave here committed to believe in and, and just really trust in who you are because we know that's what eternal life is. And pray this in Christ's name, amen.